piecing it all together. This is Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. We are piecing it all together. <laughs> and that's P-E-A-C-I-N-G. Don't forget. This is episode five. We want to thank everybody for the response that we got on the first four episodes. And for all of you who joined in and support uh, in Patreon, we'll talk a little about that at the end. We are so grateful to have partners in this conversation. Thank you for the feedback and for sharing the posts. And we're excited as we uh, expand this thing to invite more and more people into the conversation. Yeah, because, you know, that's a really uh, one of the most important things that I was asked before we did this podcast from my wife. She was like, well, this is a really good idea, Randy. I I believe that you're on to something really big. And then she said, and how much is this going to cost us? (laughs) <laughs> An important question. Important question. So at the end, we'll tell people how they can support the podcast and, uh, and financially and in media and join us in the conversation. Today, in episode six, we want to talk about the importance of place. It's one of the things that we mentioned a little bit in a previous episode that um, for us, we, we think about, we come at this a little differently in that place really matters to us. It's odd to be broadcasting this conversation out into the interwebs, which aren't really located anywhere, when you and I value place so deeply. And so I thought, hey, let's do an episode on it and help um, people understand um, both your approach, which is a little different, and I've had to have a conversion, a deep conversion, both in mind and in heart, uh, to really... Uh, change my understanding of the importance of place, both for us as human beings, but also, in my mind, theologically. Which brings us to the philosophical questions. Are all podcasts local? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. So, um, So I wanted to tell you a little story. You know parts of it. Um, because you were there for it, but we haven't talked about it in a number of years, and I thought it would be good for uh, me to rehearse it with you and then get your feedback and then have people uh, contribute their understandings or be able to follow up with questions, but I wanted to offer up my own experience as kind of a snapshot or uh, a test case uh, about what's needed to move from uh, more of a, a Western universal placeless understanding of truth to a very located uh, and rooted understanding. Yeah, that'd be great. And I I can't wait to also hear everybody else's stories. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming that this will be a topic that will get a lot of um, feedback because it is very timely. And so when I moved from Saratoga Springs, New York, where I'd been pastoring for about a decade and I moved out here to Portland, Oregon, Um, I thought I was coming, you know, there was a professor here that I was really looking forward to studying with. I ended up, I've never taken a class with him because on my first day I met you and we hit it off and I ended up switching my degrees and ended up writing my master thesis with you and Richard Twist was my second reader. So I had come from a missionary background. I was a ordained Christian and missionary alliance. And so I wanted to... Um, update my approach to missions to be a little more contextual. So that's where I, this whole thing started, my migration, my spiritual, theological, philosophical migration. 
is I just wanted to update a little bit the approach to missions so that we weren't white saviors going into other cultures and importing our cultural expectations and calling it the gospel, right? That's what I wanted to do. So I got into contextual theology and I got permission to write this thing. And the more I studied and I found these great examples. And then I submitted my first um, edition, my first copy uh, for review. And you and Richard said, there's a couple problems. So I really had taken one step, a one degree of conversion to trying to move away from colonial missions to a more contextual approach. But it turned out a much deeper conversion was needed because, um, and it revolved around place. So in Saratoga Springs, um, in New York, where I was a pastor, it used to be called 10 Springs. And for the original tribes that were there, it was actually a no fighting zone. It's where you could bring wounded people or uh, warriors and they would soak in these springs, 10 springs, and it was a place of healing. Yeah. So it was a healing safe zone. zone. Yeah. Sacred place. Sacred place. When I first found that out, I started building a theology around it and an entire approach to ministry. And so we talked about the importance of you know, this for our spiritual lives. And we actually, the church, uh, not just responded to it, but embraced it so much. It became sort of a little movement. I mean, it really generated a lot of renewal and healing. And it was, I'm so proud of, of what we did there. So I wrote this up in my, as an example of contextual theology. And I brought it to you and Richard and, um, Richard said, um, so, did you ever take people to the springs and um, pray and then have them drink the water or soak in the water? And I said, no. Because up to this point, I was so proud of myself for having a contextual theology. And he said, so basically it was just a, a metaphor. And I realized <laughs> that for as much as I was very proud of myself for migrating from colonial missions to a more contextual approach. For me, it was still just a word picture. Mm -hmm. And that unless you engage the actual land, right, you haven't gone through the full conversion out of that Western universalizing and dualism, dualism. Yeah. It was just, it was an abstract idea and it was inspiring, but it didn't engage the actual land. And so that was a really big moment for me, and I had to take the thesis back home, and I had to rewrite it. I had to rewrite a whole chapter, and I had to rewrite the introduction. And it took me a couple extra months, but it was one of the most valuable experiences I've ever had because it caused me um, to not just go as far as I was comfortable, but to truly leave my comfort zone and to go through a full sort of um, envisioning just the entire way that I was conceptualizing it and interacting with place. Right. And just so that we don't theorize this, I have to mention that 
there, there might, I don't know if there was or not, but a little lament involved in the fact that you and your people missed out from interacting with the land because the land had something valuable for you. I've always, you know, mourned a little bit and wondered that had I known then what I know now and we had taken people there, I just, I wonder if we would have seen even more people healed. I'd have to think so. Yeah. So, so that's part of creator's uh, ingenuity, I think, in creation is to uh, just being in creation, of course, is healing, right? So it lowers our cortisol level. It um, uh, it does, you know, there's there's lots of studies, especially now coming out about a forest bathing. And of course, the Japanese have a sort of a, a sort of a, um, created a, a, a sort of a uh, package of it. But but now in America, they're starting to talk about forest bathing and all the things that it does to us to um, to kind of get us away from the stressful world and all the screen technology and all those kinds of things. And so, so creation is designed for much more than that, but definitely for that. So, so just being there, um, I think would be healing, right? Mm. I mean, um, without taking it even any farther than that, it would be healing because that's, that's what creation is designed for. Place has a particular, um, meaning to indigenous peoples, um, because there's a, not just a, uh, the nature aspect of it, but there's also a social history. Mm. So um, mythologies, ceremonies, visions, dreams, incidences that occurred, all of those things, good or bad, have occurred on place, right? And so we remember those places, and they are part of our cosmology. Uh, they're part of how we think about the world. Mm. And um, the... Of course, Vine Deloria Jr., who's the sort of premier um, person who introduces to us in his book, God is Red, um, talked about how the Western world substitutes time, which tends to be a more abstract uh, construct, for place. And um, and so a number of people have written on that, including me, but um, so the idea that if we talk about time to the detriment of place, then we don't have to talk about what's actually happened on the land. And so that's very convenient, right, for Western folks um, to not have to worry about what happened here before. So it's just part of that sort of that um, that abstractness, uh, that universalizing uh, creates this idea that, hey, I can just show up somewhere and now I make it mine. So it's a very colonial thought, right? So. When I went down to Los Angeles um, to, for school, one of the I, I there were many things I liked about living in LA, but by far the most challenging was that I was constantly aware that almost no one lives in Los Angeles. Mm. They live above it. There's no interaction mm. with the actual soil, the, the actual land, it's a, it's a culture on top, right? It levitates. Los Angeles levitates above the ground. It is not rooted and grounded right in that place. And I was so painfully aware of the, the superficial nature of that. You know, 
a lot of people complain about LA and different aspects of it, the traffic and people being plastic or whatever. That stuff didn't bother me as much as just being aware that when I said LA, I never meant the land. Yeah. And it haunted me. There is a case to be made <laughs> um, in a, a lot of my urban friends may not like this, but I, if you just hang on for a second, I think <laughs> okay. I think there's a, a great case to be made that the farther uh, we become, the more we urbanize and the um, um, further we go into urbanization and the city and the concrete and the um, human-made buildings and streets and cars and uh, that, that, I think it naturally shifts us uh, um, away from God, away from the creator, because the creation is what was created to make, to point to the creation. But things that we make basically point to us. Mm. Wow. Um, And, of course, there's all kinds of places that you might go to if you were trying to you know, look at the scriptures and Babel being sort of the premier. But the idea is that um, cultures um, are very much um, endemic to the land. And so it's, in fact, even you could even say agriculture mm. creates culture. Mm-hmm. And so, so those, and, and that was, you know, we're still uh, we still have agrarianism. We're we're not. You know, they, we always say we've shifted from an agrarian society to a mechanistic to a technological um, industrial to a tech, technological society. But um, I think uh, you know, if you look around my farm, there's still agrarianism going on. Um, every day that my wife Edith and I are out here, we are reminded of God's goodness. We're reminded of. Uh, by looking at the birds, by looking at the flowers, by looking at the seeds, by watching what naturally happens um, and uh, what naturally occurs, even without our intervention. Um, And so um, I'm not sure, because I've lived in a few cities, I've lived in Denver, I've lived in Philadelphia, which are pretty good-sized cities, that I had the same experiences, even though I had a yard and those kinds of things, you know. But um, uh, I think somehow that, um, uh, and, and this is a lesson that we may have learned a long time ago as indigenous people when we had our cities in America. I mean, most people don't realize that we had large cities, uh, for example, the mound builders and the southwest cultures, uh, places like Chaco Canyon and places like uh, um, over in St. Louis, uh, Cahokia and yeah, and and there there were literally hundreds, maybe thousands of Cahokias, and there were lots of places like Chaco Canyon, maybe none as grand as that, but there were lots of smaller ones, and and all this technology and all these people who were living together. But then when the droughts came, people realized, and they began to starve and and uh, die. They realized we can't put this many people together in one place, so. What we've done is we've come up with a sort of a, uh, a temporary solutions to that. Um, but the aquifers are starting to go dry. The rivers are starting, you know, the Colorado River wouldn't naturally flow all the way now if you, if you allowed it to. 
um, there's interference going on all the places because people haven't planned well. And, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're modern people. We feel like we're protected and we're in this bubble and nothing really bad's going to happen. But yeah, you, all you have to do is be out in one snowstorm or one thunderstorm or whatever and realize that nature doesn't play around. And uh, when we have natural disasters, there's not much you can do. So I, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but <laughs> just to say... That took a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to say, I, I think that there is something to being on the land that we all have to... Uh, uh, sort of appreciate um, in terms of spirituality. Yeah. Um, another time that this really came home for me is I had an opportunity to teach a seminary class in the Ukraine. And um, so we flew over there and uh, we were, we were dry, driving out to the town that the seminary, you know, had rented a, a building in. And it was just, I noticed as we got closer to the town it changed, the scenery changed a little bit, just how beautiful this place was. And as we were there for that week, I ended up learning that in the 1950s, in Soviet times, um, sick people were sent to this town. Uh, I think it's called Vorzel, and if my memory serves. And it's because, and, and scientists have actually studied this in the last decade, that there's actually the way that the trees are there with the different species and the way that the pollination works it it actually is a place of healing and people with re- specifically with respiratory problems mm-hmm. but other ailments as well were actually sent there from Georgia and Russia and the Ukraine and it was a place of healing and it's because of the unique combination of the ways that the trees interact and cross pollination there or something yeah. and um, and I just thought that was so profound and it reminded me that in revelation 22 at the end of the christian bible there's this verse that talks about trees for the healing of the nations Mm -hmm. and i thought you know this is a literal place that embodies that abstract concept and when you don't um have centrality of place Everything is just an illustration or a metaphor or a word picture, but the truth is out there somewhere, right? It's not embodied. It's not located. Yeah. When you understand the importance of place, you understand that truth and meaning are embedded. They're rooted. They're located someplace. Literally rooted. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a number of books that have come out in the last couple of years about trees in particular. Mm. Um, one of them is called The Song of the Trees. Uh, I'm trying to remember the other one. Uh, but uh, the three that have come out that I've picked up in the last couple of years. Um, and they, they talk about uh, all the things that trees do. And these are not all what we call anthropomorphisms that it's not just like people going on with uh, uh, ascribing human traits to the trees they actually have um, uh, tested a number of these things that trees actually each have their own sort of song if you will that they sing that trees actually have heartbeats it's very slow like some of them like beats once a day but over time 
Um, there are uh, lots of uh, uh, people who talk about that the um, mycelium, uh, the mushroom lines of small microscopic lines of mushrooms are actually like an interconnected web, if you will, right, among right. trees and forests, which is another reason you want diversity because if they're all one thing, then they all can become disabled. It's sort of like if you're all in the same network, I guess, or something, but, um, and you get a bug, yeah. a virus. So, so there's this, you know, all these things going on. I mean, in one, I mean, uh, in in one healthy handful of good soil, there's about 400 billion microbes, right? And about four miles of mycelium in one handful. So, you know, the earth is alive. And the places that we go to have their own not only natural characteristics, historical characteristics, social characteristics. And those things aren't separate from each other. They connect to each other. So, you know, um, a lot of people, uh, you know, were criticized back in the 70s and 80s and 90s environmentalists, and they were called tree huggers. But, you know, the, the literally will reduce your cortisone. So, yeah, go hug a tree. <laughs> so just, you know, with the time we have left. Cortisol, not cortisol. <laughs> with the time we have left, I just want to say that it's fascinating to me that in this Western worldview, we start getting nervous when you talk about the earth being alive because we think, oh, here it comes. Now we're going to start, you know, talking about uh, worshiping the earth. Mother earth. Right? Yep. But the simple fact is, uh, and this is why I'm, I'm so fascinated, that um, science is, is proving so much of what lots of ancients knew, right? Whether it's the power of prayer or the benefit of a Sabbath, Right, like science is studying medical science is studying stuff, and also with these things that you're talking about in creation. Yeah, like pan, what we call panentheism, right? Mm-hmm. So that that there is life in everything. Mm-hmm. So um, I believe there's life in trees or stuff. And so, for example, when we go to um, take down a plant or a tree for its use, we put some tobacco down and we say thank you. Um, we believe that, um, you know, and you could just say, oh, well, that's a, metaf- a metaphor. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that thankfulness. The tree doesn't hear you, does it? And we apologize to the tree, right? Um, and we explain what its life is going to be used for. And so um, uh, it, it could be maybe just to create humility in us, but I actually think that, that mm-hmm. it responds. You know? And that's, I think that's the important point is that, both the importance of place and the life of the earth, we have a relationship with creation, with nature, if you want to say it that way. And when we don't acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. we suffer. That's right. And the earth suffers. And so when we cut into it to remove, right, whether it's minerals or we drill into it to, get out what we need and we do that without gratefulness there is a carelessness that sets in Mm -hmm. and there are deep and 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 catastrophic consequences Mm. so whether it's damming a river or drilling into the earth or right polluting the the sky if we don't acknowledge the both the importance of place Mm -hmm. 
and that the earth is alive, that it has a life, and we're in a relationship with it, we both suffer. Yeah. And, and everybody knows this sort of like, even a, a lot of hunters know, for example, mm-hmm. now they've, they've watched this happen enough times as the Western world has experimented with nature and they remove the apex predator, right? Mm-hmm. Like a wolf, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, then the deer become so populated that they uh, end up starving to death. And so you lose a yeah, lot more deer. Yes. And, and, and at first they, they eat everything and they overpopulate, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what tells their signal. Oh, good days ahead. Yeah. But then um, uh, they're not able to um, the, to have enough after a while, and you know, and so you end up actually with um, uh, endangering a whole species, getting disease, getting weak, etc. Because you remove the apex predator. So there's a there, and there's countless stories like this where. Where that's happened, and and places where they're reintroducing mm-hmm. things like wolves, and and of course now because we have cows and mm-hmm. ranchers, that's a big concern. But yeah, it, it's sort of like um, we have this idea that we can do a better job, right, than what naturally evolved mm-hmm. under God's guidance, I believe, for thousands and thousands of years. That so we can just step on the scene and go, here, I'll make this place what I want it to mm-hmm. be. So, uh, I think if I were to encourage um, our listeners with anything, I would say, um, take a minute and just um, let it set in that place matters. Think about where you are and the importance of that place and that land. And then... Open up your spirit to realize that that's not just a word picture or a metaphor, that the centrality of place and the life of creation or nature in that place sustains your very life. And this will create something in you where you'll actually start to see things you didn't see before and notice things you didn't notice. You'll hear things that you were ignoring before. They were always being broadcast, but you weren't tuned into it. But it'll also create in you a curiosity to look into your place and the story that your place is telling. And what story did it tell before? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, before you got to your place, there were probably... uh, other people who were on that place for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And as they shaped the land and they were shaped by the land, what effect is that having on you now? And of course, then there's always the question I'll have, which is, and where are those people now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So listeners, thank you. Uh, We look forward to hearing your stories about your place and um, your thoughts on this. We would love some feedback. We also want to thank everybody who signed up on Patreon and supported us this first week. We had such a good first week. Yeah, it was great. Oh, man. So thank you to everybody who did that. If you want to support this podcast and join in the conversation, there are four ways you can do it. The first is to like the Facebook page, and anyone can post there. It's totally free. For a dollar a month, you'll become a part of a Facebook group. It's kind of behind the scenes where we can have conversations and, and, um, and, and post things 
uh, for at a deeper level of engagement. At the $10 level, you're going to get an email address. When you send us emails, whether they're written or you send an MP3, they will be read or played on upcoming episodes. So you'll give direction to the podcast, or you can just um, suggest topics or whatever it is, engagements. Um, that's at the $10 level. And then at the $20 level, uh, every other month, you're going to get an invitation to a live recording with us where your voice can be on the program as well so that this becomes really interactive and a dialogue with um, people who have, have put some skin in the game and have said, I want in, I want to be a part of this conversation. And for all of you who did that, we say thank you. Thank you. We will see you on episode six when we're going to talk about not calling yourself a Christian anymore. What? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, um, you and Edith don't call yourself Christians anymore. It's a real thing. <laughs> we'll see you then.